Foreign policy. I almost fall asleep saying it. Those two words seem to fill the mouths of almost every greedy politician and plastic news correspondents. To our generation, those words are almost synonymous with the word boring. Before you fall asleep, though, allow me to explain exactly what it is and why it is one of the biggest, most important aspects of American politics. Welcome to the Everything series, where the possibilities are endless. Every month, a host produces a new episode for your listening enjoyment. So kick back, relax, and get ready for everything. Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Now, Johnny, what say we open up this evening with a real free swinging blues number called I'm Walking. American foreign policy affects the largest amount of people compared to any other branch of American government because it mainly deals with the U.S. in relation to other countries and foreign affairs. Therefore, decisions in this field affect not only Americans, but citizens of other countries. This can mean striking deals with other countries regarding nuclear weapons or power, uh, the import and export of American and foreign products, and even things like war. After we finished our research, we wondered how much students here at BHS knew about foreign policy. So we armed Jacob with a mic and sent him into the wild Benicia High School landscape to find out how much people really know. So what are your feelings on foreign policy? I know absolutely nothing about foreign policy. I don't know what it is. Wait, foreign policy? What the f*** is it? foreign policy? Okay, great. So what are your opinions on current foreign policy? Uh, well, I think we do. Okay, so that answers that question. After hearing a resounding not much from the student body, we thought it'd be right to open their eyes to a modern problem that has affected their lives directly. And to do this, we must look at one of the biggest foreign policy disasters in American history, George W. Bush's War on Terror. It all started on that day. On September the 11th, enemies of freedom committed an act of war against our country. Bush was reading The Pet Goat at Emma T. Brooker Elementary School in Florida when he received the news that two hijacked planes had crashed into the World Trade Center. 
Nine days later, Bush said the three words that would forever haunt his career in an address where he announced his war on terror. Our war on terror begins with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. On October 7th, that war began with the invasion of Afghanistan. Operation Enduring Freedom had officially come to fruition when the Taliban refused to turn over Osama bin Laden. Bush's plan to invade Afghanistan was a particularly interesting decision since war is expensive and Bush had decided to cut taxes earlier that year with the Economic Growth and Tax Relief Reconciliation Act of 2001. This was particularly damaging to the American economy, but as Bush's presidency continued, it didn't seem like he was too concerned with preserving it. Two years later, in 2003, he decided to begin the war in Iraq on the grounds that they were harboring weapons of mass destruction. This was later found to be false. After the death of Saddam Hussein three years later, the American government implemented a new form of democratic government that Iraq wasn't used to. In reflection, it seems as though America did not make the best decisions surrounding these events. However, this isn't the first time America had been rather aggressive in its foreign policy decisions. In this next segment, Blake seeks to reveal the parallelism between these fairly recent decisions and American foreign policy in the 1800s. During the 19th century, the U.S. practiced isolationism, which was encouraged by the geographical isolation from other world powers and ample room for expansion within borders. This, however, changed towards the end of the century with the Spanish-American War. The U.S. was seeking to acquire more land for economic reasons. As part of the Paris Peace Treaty of 1898 that ended the war, the U.S. gained control over Puerto Rico, Cuba, and Guam, along with the purchase of the Philippines for $20 million. Instead of withdrawing and retreating to their old ways of isolationism, the U.S. had a change of mind and grew fond of expansion, fighting for control over the newly acquired territories. The U.S. was still mostly isolated from Eastern powers, but they began to practice their world power within geographically close regions. In many cases, the U.S. went too far, becoming bullies to the surrounding areas, overthrowing foreign government, assimilating different countries, prohibiting independence, and being hypocritical in the flexing of military power in the Caribbean. At the end of George Washington's presidency, he urged America to stay out of it when it came to foreign policy. Isolationism was the favorable philosophy for many years after Washington's presidency. However, America eventually decided to break this policy and go all out. In every situation of extremes, there must come a time of balance, which is usually found after an overcorrection. Hopefully, we have passed this overcorrection and will be seeing some balance in the coming years. 
Now, if one were to ask themselves, why is war on aggressive action so popular in America? The answer could be easily found with a quick glance at the American people. War is by far the most flashy and assertive action a country could take. When looking at this and considering the popular philosophy of consumer capitalism that has infested our communities, it makes it easier to understand why those who are uneducated would support war efforts like these. Let me introduce you to Dave. He is a retired cop who lives in Utah. He spends his days planning Civil War reenactments with his buddies and reading such classic works as Killing Jesus by Bill O'Reilly. When Dave flips on the TV, he sees these progressive Californian politicians complaining about foreign affairs. He feels frustrated. He doesn't want to hear about it, he wants to see it. Dave complains that the lack of action will result in no progress. This is the same stance he took in October of 2001. However, his wishes were met with military action, and he was happy. He was able to flip on Fox and see Johnny Smith, the all-American man, running in the desert wearing a helmet with gun and arm. Now that's progress, Dave said. The romanticism of war has enveloped the minds of many Americans who fail to understand the implications and economic repercussions of military action. This is why our generation must not only fight for civil rights, but social change in the way of consumerism. This is the only way America can lose the romanticism that surrounds war and accept the idea of using your words instead of your fists. This episode was produced by me, Anders Knustad, in conjunction with Blake Patchen, Devin Rourke, and Jacob Jones. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Everything series.